This morning I, I had to run over to Bristol. My parents are selling their house and I got a phone call. They're away and got a phone call saying uh, the prospective buyers need some sort of paper trail for something. And so I ran over to Bristol and was going through these two drawers that I was never allowed to go through as a child. And I'm kind of wondering now why, like what was so special about those two drawers, but going through them, I think probably my parents' will is quite a significant thing I wasn't supposed to see, but um, you know, there's all these different things in there, and I was, I was reading letters from my dad to the bank manager, and from the bank manager to my dad, and from my dad to the solicitor, and it was all to do with when they bought the house back in 1981. And it was kind of weird holding letters that felt like they could collapse you know, as I held them. Was, I don't know what they made paper out of back in the day, but it was very, very thin stuff. And, uh, and yeah, it's just kind of strange to be reading somebody else's post. And in a sense, that's what we're going to be doing in our new series. Our new series is called Dear Church. And we're looking at some letters that actually were written about 2,000 years ago. And they were written to a group of churches um, in uh, Asia Minor, which we would call Turkey today. And we'll see a bit more about that in a second. But the thing is about these letters, this is not just somebody else's post. This is for us. These letters are, are unique because they were written uh, not just inspired by God, and that's amazing. You think of Romans and Galatians and all these letters in the New Testament. They were inspired by God for specific churches. But these were dictated by Jesus. And so these are letters from Jesus to churches at that time, but every one of them has this little phrase in it. It says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Which means that all seven letters were for the benefit of all seven churches, but beyond that, all seven letters are for the benefit of all churches. And so we're looking at posts that may be 2,000 years old, but it's post for us. It's post in which we get to see what Jesus would say to churches that he cared about. And we know that he cares about Trinity, and so these are letters for our benefit too. Now, just a little bit of, of background. These come in the book of Revelation. I don't think we've ever opened the book of Revelation in three years, uh, which is not a good thing. We should be in the book of Revelation more often. You know, it's the only book in the Bible that promises you a blessing if you read it. And so read it, you'll be blessed, okay? And what you'll find in the book of Revelation is it starts in chapter one with uh, John, who was one of Jesus's disciples, the one that was really close to him, a really close friend of Jesus. And John had uh, gone on down through the years, the decades had passed, all the others, Peter and James, and all the others had been killed. And John was the last one left. It's tough growing old. And he had grown old, he'd lost all of his peers, and I wonder how much he thought about those years with Jesus. I imagine quite a bit, don't you? Thinking back to the times when they fished together, and when Jesus spoke, and when Jesus did the miracles, and he would think back to those special years, and as he pressed on, serving decade after decade. He was involved in leadership of a church. But eventually he was arrested and he was taken to essentially a concentration camp. It was an island prison called Patmos. And he was on Patmos one Sunday morning when uh, all of a sudden he got to see Jesus again. That just gives me kind of goosebumps just thinking about it. Imagine 60 years later 
All, of, all that he'd gone through, all of his love for Jesus, all of his prayers to Jesus, all of the, the connection, all of the history that they had, and suddenly there he is, and John fell down before him as if he was a dead man, and Jesus picked him up. What an amazing moment that must have been. Revelation does not have an S on it. All right, lots of people call it revelations. I, I don't know why, maybe because there's lots of things in it, but it's one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter one, we get this amazing glimpse of the risen and glorified Jesus. I, I recommend you read it. Uh, you'll be blessed if you do. And then after that, Jesus dictates these seven letters. And we're going to be looking at those over these next seven weeks. Sunday, we'll be preaching them. Life group, will be looking at them. It's going to be a really valuable time for us. So uh, we, will, we will be reading these seven letters. We will be blessed. But then after that, uh, from chapter four onwards, John's vision that he's given of Jesus Christ goes back and forth between heaven and earth. And it's quite overwhelming at times. There's disagreements over the timing of it. And I'm not saying that if you just read it, you'll get it. But I am saying if you read it, you'll be blessed. And so go for it. Enjoy the book of Revelation. And when you get to the end, the, at the last two, three chapters, they're just overwhelming. It's, it's like he, he started with this glorious glimpse of Jesus in chapter one, and then you come to the end and there's this glimpse of the glory to come when we're with Jesus in the future. It's this incredibly amazing picture of what the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be like and what the future holds for us beyond this life, beyond sin and death and terrorism and pain and all of that stuff. We get a glimpse at the end of something really glorious. Read it. You will be blessed, I promise. And so for these seven weeks, we're thinking about chapters two and three, seven letters to seven churches, dear church. I'm excited. I hope you uh, can get a little bit excited. I know most of us are British and we don't tend to show it, but let's be excited about Revelation 2 and 3. And we're going to jump into the first letter this afternoon. It comes in chapter 2. Starts at the beginning, it's on page 1028, if you have one of the church Bibles, and it's the letter to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to jump in, I'm going to read a bit, and then I'm going to have to stop and explain a couple of things as we go. But let's, let's dive in. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, well, let's, let's stop there. What's the angel of the church in Ephesus? Could be one of two things could be that every church has its own angel. I think that's a really cool concept. I'd love to meet ours. Uh, you know, I would imagine that the angel for Trinity, if we have one, might have been reassigned. I wonder if he's sort of looking and scratching his head a bit and going, well, this is different than what I'm, you know, my last assignment. I don't know. But it may be that there, it, there's a specific angel for every church. That's a possibility. Or it could simply mean to the messenger, that's what the word is, to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. And so a lot of people, and I think I'm included, would take it to be one of the church leaders, one of the pastors, one of the elders of the church, who's going to deliver the message to the church. It seems to make sense in light of what's uh, come previously in chapter 1. So there may be an angel assigned to this church. If so, praise the Lord. If not, he knows what he's doing. But there are church leaders. 
And what we find in the first chapter is that the church leaders, the uh, seven stars as it's referred to, uh, are going to be referenced again now uh, in this initial description uh, where he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What we've got in these, these letters is a, a pattern. There's kind of like a structure to each letter. And uh, let me tell you what the structure is. They have a beginning. That comes at the start. Then there's a middle bit. You'll, I'll let you figure out where that bit is. And then there's an ending. I know, it's insightful, isn't it? So there's a beginning, there's a middle bit, and there's an ending, and all seven letters follow the same pattern. So they all begin with a description of Jesus. In this case, to the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Then comes the middle bit where Jesus talks to the church and says, look, I know what's going on, you you know, thumbs up for this, and maybe I'm a little bit concerned about that. And we'll see, see that as we go on. And then you get to the end. And the description at the end is not of Jesus, but it's uh, of a promise to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers. And so there's a glimpse of Jesus at the start. And there's a glimpse of the future at the end. It's almost like each one of the seven letters is like a mini book of Revelation. Starts with a, a glimpse at Jesus, finishes with a glimpse of our future, and in the middle talks about right now. Okay, so in this case, what do we get from this glimpse of Jesus? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Back in chapter one, that part is explained. The golden lampstands are the seven churches. The stars are the angels or the messengers or the leaders of the churches. And what I love about this picture of Jesus is that he's not somewhere far away. It's easy to think of him that way, isn't it? Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. He went back to heaven and now we're getting on with it and he's somewhere else. And then you read that and discover, no, he's right here in the midst He's, he's wandering, walking around amongst the seven churches. He's close. He cares. In his hand, he's holding those who are leading the churches, not with a, a sort of a loose grip, but it's a tight grasp. He's got them and they're secure. There's something that's incredibly powerful about that image. It speaks of the fact that he's in charge, that it's his church, that he's supervising closely what's going on. But it also speaks of how much he cares, that he would want to be close to us. If I could press pause on time, which is one of my long, lifelong desires, I can't do it. If I could press pause, I'd press pause right now and do a trek through the whole Bible to see that God is a God who loves to come and be in the midst of his people. It's one of the great themes of scripture. I can't press pause. Don't worry, I'm not going to take an hour to do that. But we've got a glimpse of it right here. Here's Jesus in the midst of his church. Isn't it amazing to think that when we come to Trinity on a Sunday, we come to a room in the Olympiad and there's people frantically moving chairs and setting up stuff. And, you know, there's a friendly face at the front door to welcome you. And, and, and it's all so familiar and it's all so normal, but there's something uniquely special about it. Jesus is here. He cares about what is going on in this church. That's beautiful, isn't it? 
In fact, as he goes on, he commends the church at Ephesus. He, he tells them things that he's really pleased about. He begins verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He even goes on, verse 6, to say something we don't even get. Yet this you have, he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Amen. I don't know who the Nicolaitans are. See, this is, this is post to the church at Ephesus, but to them, they knew exactly what he was talking about. I suppose I was just thinking about it this week. I was thinking, if you live in Chippenham, there's certain things that you know that somebody from outside would sort of scratch their head about, you know? If you got some kind of document relating to Chippenham and it talked about the, the viaduct and it talked about the arches and it talked about the fact that there's like only one way to go through town and if you want to go around the other side of town, you've got to go through the car park. Like, where is that true except in Chippenham? It's like a, a, row, a, a, a town with half a ring road. It's bizarre. And the one-way triangle. And there's all these little things, aren't there, that when you live here, you go, yeah, yeah, that's Chippenham. And so if there was a letter to the church in Chippenham, Jesus could refer to, I don't think he would, but he could refer to some of those things. And we'd all go, yeah, he knows. And someone on the outside would go, I've got no clue. Well, that's, what, what sort of a town? How, you have to drive through a car park. That's weird. And you can't go back the other way? How's that possible? Anyway, so there's a bit of that going on here. He refers to the Nicolaitans, and we, we don't know who they are. Some kind of false teaching group, some, something going on there. Um, but there's a lot of this that does make sense. I love the fact that Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Just, just think about that in, in our terms. That's like Jesus saying, I know the effort you've put in. I know how much effort it was to prepare for that kids club lesson that didn't really kind of make sense in the curriculum and you had to go above and beyond and, and make sense of it. I know how hard it was to prepare for the crash when you had so much else going on with work and family and illness and stuff. I, I know what it took to be there to do the refreshments. I know the hours you put in to lead that youth group. I know what it took to, to prepare that sermon. I know the hundreds of hours you've practiced on that instrument so that you could lead the worship. I know your work, your toil. I know it all. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That Jesus knows everything that goes into a church functioning. They were diligent people at Ephesus. They worked hard. Pope John XXIII was once asked, how many people work in the Vatican? His answer was, about half of them, which I thought was quite a clever answer, right? So I wonder what we'd say if someone said, how many people work at Trinity Chippenham? I tell you, we wouldn't give that answer, funny as that is. We wouldn't say that. They say that in most churches, Pareto's rule applies, that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. That may be true, but I tell you what, I think there's a lot of work that goes on at Trinity. I don't even know all the work that goes on, and I'm one of the elders here. 
All the hours behind the scenes, all the work for Sunday, but then all the work for life group and all the work for a barbecue last night and all the work that goes in for all the different things, all the one-to-one interactions, the phone calls, the text messages, the encouragements, the time spent praying for one another. I don't even know, but Jesus knows. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to have a church full of people who are giving themselves to enable that church to exist and to function. Jesus knew and he commended them at Ephesus for their diligence. He commended them as well for their discernment. Notice at the end of the verse, he says, um, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. It's interesting, if you go back through the New Testament, uh, the church at Ephesus was... Uh, started back in the 50s, not 1950s, the 050s, and Paul wrote a letter to them. And he said that, I've heard of your faith toward the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And then he visited the elders in Acts 20. And he said, look, I know that after I leave, wolves are going to come in amongst you. You need to be careful. You need to be discerning. There's going to be false teaching. And here we are 30 plus years later and Jesus is saying, you took that on board. You became a discerning church. You've tested the false teachers. You, you know what is true. You stand for the truth. And that's a good thing. That's increasingly a difficult thing. We live now in a time when our media is brainwashing us that it is not appropriate to evaluate anything. We're told that it is not tolerant to evaluate whether something is right or wrong. Now, that's, that's weird. Okay, we're a little bit frog in the pot here that's boiling and doesn't realize it. The whole concept of tolerance has been totally twisted. Go back a generation. Tolerance was, I don't agree with you. I think you're completely wrong, but you have the right to have that opinion. I will tolerate. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to crush you. I'm not going to kill you. You can have that opinion, but you are wrong. That was tolerance, and it worked. Nowadays, what's tolerance? Tolerance is, I can't evaluate whether you're right or wrong. You can believe anything you want because there's no such thing as true or right. And if I start saying that this is right or that is wrong, I'm being intolerant. Now, I haven't taken out a gun. I haven't threatened anybody's life. I might be the most loving person in the world, but I'm being intolerant because it's no longer PC to judge, to evaluate, to discern. But Jesus says it's the right thing to do. There are false teachings around. There's false ideas. There's corrupted and twisted and perverted versions of the gospel. And we need to be a church that continues to grow in discernment. To be able to spot when something's not right. Believe me, as elders, we're, we're alert to that. When somebody comes into the church, we, you know, we love them and we welcome them, but we're watching and we're listening. And if we start to get a little whiff that they've got an agenda that doesn't match with what we see the Bible saying, we're, we're on it. We're, you know, we're going to talk to them. We're going to redirect them. We might have to confront them. But we take it seriously because false teaching can lead people into a total mess of a faith, a shipwrecked faith. And Jesus is saying, hey, church at Ephesus, you're on it. 
You're discerning. You can spot when something's false. Good job. And he also says, as well as being diligent, as well as being discerning, he says, look, you're, you're determined. You, you've suffered persecution, but you've kept going. You haven't given up. You've, you've been on the receiving end of some tough stuff, but you're still standing firm. That's verse three. This is a good church, isn't it? I suppose if we were to go on to an early version of the internet, say the first century version, and we were able to find findachurch.com, uh, this church at Ephesus would kind of come up as being one of the solid ones. That's a good, solid church there at Ephesus. They're diligent. They've got a busy program. They're discerning. They don't tolerate any false teaching. They deal with it. You know, they can spot the difference between truth and error. And they're determined. I mean, they've suffered a lot, but they've stood firm. This is a strong church. But then you get to verse 4. And in verse 4, Jesus says, but. You're this, you're this, you're this. It's good, it's good, it's good. But I've got one thing against you. He says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. You've left your first love. Wow, that's serious. It's possible for a church to leave its first love. Let's take that and and transfer it over into kind of human terms. Uh, Some of you know Paul Mallard. I heard Paul Mallard speaking on this passage years ago. And he just went straight to the human example. And I thought that is so obvious, but such a good way to deal with this. Imagine with me, if you will, a couple, a young couple, they meet and suddenly there's like sparks and they're in love with each other and you know her ring is always showing and his smile is suddenly showing and, and everyone watching says if any two people were meant for each other it's this two. And sure enough the invitations come and the wedding day's set and, and they come together and they join together in holy matrimony and everybody just nods and smiles like that is meant to be. And the days become weeks and the months become years. And what started so well starts to grow a little bit cold. He starts to suspect that something's not right. He starts to question in his mind, why was she late without calling? Where was she? What was going on? And you know how it goes, this little bit of suspicion, it grows and grows. And eventually it gets to a point where he's absolutely convinced she's got another man. There's somebody else, it's somebody from work, it's somebody she's met on the train. Somewhere there is another man in my wife's life because it seems to be showing. And so he comes to a point where he has to confront her. He just can't help it anymore, he just he can't hold back. And, and one evening as they're sitting there over their food, he says, who is it? She says, what? Who's what? Who is he? I want to know, I need to know who is the other man. And she says, what other man? And he says, the other man, you're, you're clearly having an affair. And she says, no, no, I'm not. She's like, look, I vowed on the day we got married that I would be faithful to you until the day that I die. I have been faithful and I will be faithful. I will continue to do everything that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to submit to you and you know, love you and respect you and all the things that the, the Bible says, well, except for one, I just don't love you anymore. So I'll respect you, but I won't love you. I'll be faithful, but I don't love you. What's his response to that? Is he going to say, oh, that's fair enough. As long as you're faithful, I'll, I'll tolerate it. 
course not. That would be a devastating conversation, wouldn't it? To have a conversation where somebody says to you, I just don't love you. It's gone. It's finished. The love is finished. I'll be faithful and I'll be a good spouse and I'll tick all the boxes and anybody watching would say, that is the epitome of what a wife should be. I'll do all of that, but I don't love you. That would be absolutely devastating. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. He's saying, listen, guys, you're getting it all right. You're diligent, you're determined, you're discerning, like you tick all the boxes, you get to the top of the lists, you know, like you're the church that people talk about and write blog posts about, you're a really good church, but you don't love me. You've abandoned your first love. It's possible for that to happen to a church. And actually we know that, don't we? Because we all recognize that it's possible to happen within us. Have you ever kind of wondered what's going on in me? What is it about the person in the mirror that just seems to have grown cold to Jesus? I think all of us have been there at different times. You're singing a song that used to move you and now it's just words on a screen. And you're more concerned with the tune than you are with with the truth. You're reading your Bible and it's just print on a page, but it's doing nothing inside you. Come on, give me some feedback here. Am I not the only one here? Is there someone else? We, we all feel that, don't we? That there's times where we feel like the temperature in our own hearts has plummeted toward Jesus. And we go, what is going on in me? And if that can happen to us individually, then it can happen to us corporately. Trinity Chippenham, three and a half years old, isn't there but we could get there. We could get to a point where Jesus could write this letter to us and say, you've grown in number, you've grown in discernment, you've grown in program, you've grown in suffering and enduring. You're like the church at Ephesus, but you've abandoned your first love. What a terrible thing that would be. It's kind of like doing church in a Martha-like way, but losing that Mary-like devotion. Remember that story? Jesus showed up at, at his friend's house, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he, he arrived with all his disciples, and, and Martha went into overdrive. She's in the kitchen, and she's trying to get the beans cooked and the potatoes cooked and the gravy done at the right time, like wasn't expecting 13 guests, and so she's going all frantic in the kitchen. Meanwhile, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus is talking, and Mary's soaking it in, and Martha's out in the kitchen, and she's fuming and there's more steam coming out of her ears than there is coming off the cooker I mean she is absolutely frustrated and in the end she comes into Jesus and she tells him off it's in Luke chapter 10 she says don't you care Ooh, awkward She's talking to the Messiah don't you care don't you care tell her to help me I mean she gets all bossy and frantic and and Jesus looks into that situation he says Martha Martha You're stressed about all this stuff, but only one thing matters. What Mary has chosen is the important thing. Now, Jesus isn't condemning busyness. He's not saying that we should never work. He's just said in this letter to the Ephesians that I know your work and it's a good thing. He's not criticizing work. What he's saying is, look, it's possible for our attitudes to go completely pear-shaped if we get things out of order. Just before that passage in Luke 10, Jesus is talking uh, to someone else and, and there's this teaching that's coming through. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. 
And it's always in that order, love God, love neighbor, love God, love neighbor. And here's Martha, and what's she doing? She's loving her neighbors, frantically, desperately trying to pull the meal together to love these 13 guys in her living room. And if we could press pause there and travel through time, another thing I haven't worked out, but if we could press pause and travel through time and interview Martha, hey Martha, sorry to bother you, little church interview. What's going on? Don't you know you're supposed to love God first, love neighbor second? I think she'd give the classic evangelical answer. I am loving God by loving my neighbor. Now, if you wouldn't mind getting out of the way, my gravy's about to spill. I think she would give that kind of an answer. And that's what we give sometimes, isn't it? I really love God, which is why I'm so busy. But if we do that, we can end up in a Martha-like ministry, in a Martha-like church. We can lose track of the Mary-like devotion that Jesus so longs for us to have. Before we give, before we serve, before we pour ourselves out, we all need to sit at Jesus' feet and let him pour into us. We need to allow him to love us and minister to us and care for us because our response is always going to be just that, a response. We cannot manufacture and self-generate love for Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. That's a lesson for us. I think whether you've been kind of Martha inclined in the past or not, I think all of us could become that way because even though this is three and a half years old now, this church, it's still a bit of a church plant, isn't it? Even last night, the men were gathered and we were talking about, okay, what could we do for men's ministry? Like, we've never figured this out before. There's new things happening. And and as you do church planting, you kind of need to roll up your sleeves. And honestly, as as leaders, we sort of pray a little bit, Lord, would you give us some Marthas? (laughs) We need some busy people. We need people that will carry the load and do the work and make it happen. And even if you've never been Martha-like before, being in a new church can do it to you. Before you know it, you can be busy. And you can be diligent, but your devotion can grow cold. We need to make sure that we sit at Jesus' feet, that we allow him to minister to us so that out of the overflow of that, we can minister to others in the church, in the home, and with our kids, all of the different challenges that we face. It's got to come out of that devotion. It cannot be separated. And so Jesus is writing to this church and he just says it. He just says it. I've got this against you. You have abandon the love that you had at first. I wonder if some of us can relate to that. I wonder if some of us feel that in our own lives, like, ah, that feels like Jesus speaking to me. The love I had at first. I remember the time. In fact, that's what Jesus says to do. Verse, uh, where are we, five? Remember. Remember the time. Remember where you've come from. Remember that time when you used to get up extra early so you could spend time in prayer. Remember the time when instead of turning on the car stereo, you'd leave it off so you could talk to Jesus. Remember the time when you you come to the end of your Bible reading and you're like, no, I need to read some more. And you'd be sort of reading it as you were putting your shoes on. Remember that. 
Remember what it was like when you used to put that CD on and it just moved you to tears and you'd be singing at the top of your lungs. Remember what it was like, whatever it is, remember that. Remember that first love when you were so gripped by the love of God for you that you were ready to to give sacrificially just to, to, to give and to give and to give just to show him that you love him. And you'd, you'd look at your holidays and say, if only they were longer so I could serve more. And, and, and everything was, was all about him and someone that didn't know him. I need to tell them. Remember what that was like. And then he says a second thing. He says, repent. Remember where you've fallen from. Remember what it was like when you were so overwhelmed that you just loved Jesus with all your heart. Remember that. And then he says, repent. That is turn back to him. Turn from whatever it is that has captured your heart since. And here's an important thing. It's not that we either have love or no love. The, the fact is every one of us has love. Right? We, we have like a, a tank, an amount of love in its total and it's there. And it's not that the love fades and disappears. It's that the love moves in a different direction. And so if you find that your love for Jesus isn't what it was, it's probably because your love for something else has become bigger. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Either you'll hate the one and despise the other or you'll love the one. You know, it's, like it's one or the other. You can't do both. It's like you haven't got the capacity to be sold out for Jesus and sold out for money. And it's true, isn't it? That if we've drifted from Jesus... It probably doesn't take us too long to figure out, with God's help, where we've started pouring our hearts. The career, the goals, the hobby, the interest, the collection, the relationship, that person, whatever it is. There's something that's captured us, that TV show. You're just going to watch one and now you've watched 14 series of it. Whatever it is, our hearts get tugged and pulled. And it's not always evil stuff, is it? It can be good things. And yet we can find our hearts being pulled in other directions. And Jesus is really clear. He says, remember and repent. Remember where you've come from, where you were at in your love for me. And turn back to me. Turn from these other things. Maybe some of us need to take action. Maybe we need to put a block on a website. Maybe we need to put an end to a relationship. Maybe we need to, to, to cancel a direct debit. Maybe we need to change our plans significantly in order to turn our hearts back to Jesus. Remember, repent, and thirdly, he says, repeat. Do the things you did at first. Dust off your Bible and try it again. Find that CD and play it again. Go for a walk in those woods again. Whatever it is that, that used to get you so thrilled about Jesus, put those things back in place. Remember, repent, and repeat. And then there's one more thing. Realize. Realize that this life is not the whole thing. You see, right at the end of the letter, we get this little glimpse into the future. He says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says that in every letter. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
to the one who conquers, to the overcomer. Now, I'm going to ask you to trust me on this. Next week, I'm going to explain what it means to be an overcomer or a conqueror. For now, let me just say it, and and I'll ask you to trust me. It's not a super spiritual, extra special Christian. It's the normal Christian life. It's the, the life of somebody who's responsive to Jesus, okay? And I'll prove that next week. But, but, but notice what the promise is here. If you will respond to Jesus as he's pulling at your heart and saying, hey, you've abandoned your first love, turn back to me. What's there in store? Verse seven, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Fast forward beyond this life, beyond our experience that we know now, what's in store for Christians? Revelation 20, 21, 22 anticipates the time when we will be with him. And the language that's used at the end of the Bible is language that reminds us of the start of the Bible. Like God's original design in the garden, the paradise of Eden was for Adam and Eve to walk in the cool of the day with God, to eat of the tree of life together, to enjoy fellowship with one another. And here Jesus is saying, listen, turn back to me. Enjoy fellowship with me because that's what you were created for and that's where you're going to end up. There's going to be a point in time where you're not going to be on Netflix There's going to be a point in time where your career will be a thing of the past. There's going to be a point in time where that relationship suddenly won't make any sense anymore. And the thing that makes sense is that you're in the paradise of God and you're with Jesus. And you're walking together as we were created to do in the first place. Do you see how this letter holds together? Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches because he cares. And he wants us to be walking with him in this life because he cares. And one day we're going to be walking with him in the paradise of God because he cares. Let's be consistent. That's what the call is. Let's live our lives today as if what it says of Jesus is true and as if what it says of the future is true because both are true. Jesus does love us. He has proven it at the cross. He is actively involved in our church and in our lives today. And one day we're going to be with him face to face, shoulder to shoulder. We're going to walk together. We're going to laugh together. We're going to, we're going to tell stories to one another. And we're going to be close with Jesus, which is what we were created for in the first place. And if that's true... Doesn't it just make it so much more poignant when Jesus says, excuse me, you've abandoned your first love and you're ticking all the boxes and you're doing a good job of, of being the bride of Christ, but you don't love me. And that's the most important thing to him. Not that the other stuff doesn't matter, but if we don't love him, then the marriage is a sham. You see, I think this letter is not just a letter to a church at Ephesus 2,000 years ago. This feels like seven verses that have been kind of crafted into an arrow and shot right into my heart because I feel the drift. I feel the tug of other things. I can look back on times when my love for Jesus was so much more inflamed and fervent than it is today. Maybe these verses are for you too. Maybe this letter is for us as a church 
And maybe when Jesus says, dear church, we want to sit up and listen. What's the right response? What's the, how do we get back to where we want to be? Remember, repent, repeat, realize, yeah, all of that. But what we're going to do now is maybe the most important thing of all. Not focus on ourselves, not make a list of how we're going to do life differently this week. That's our human nature. No, what we're going to do now is something we try to do almost every week at Trinity. We're going to take communion. A bit of bread and some juice that's like a visual reminder of the love of Jesus for us. It's a moment in time where we get to just pause everything else and fix the gaze of our hearts on the one who loved us and died for us. Nothing special about the bread or or the juice. It's not mystical, it's not magical, it's just bread and juice. But what it represents is so special to us that if you're here today and you're, you're sort of listening in, you know, you're like, this is fascinating, but I'm not there you know i don't love jesus like these people seem to that's you know we're we're delighted you're here that's great but we'd ask you not to take part because the bread and the juice is so special for us that that we'd love you just to sit and watch and think about jesus dying on the cross for you that's what this is a, a picture of and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to pray and then the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing and as we're singing When you feel like it's an appropriate moment, just head to the back and help yourself. If you want to go as a couple, maybe, you know, serve each other, whatever. We'll leave that to you, but we're just going to take a moment to say thank you for loving me. We love him because he first loved us.